You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, today we are starting a new set of, uh, ser- uh, set of sermons called uh, Enjoy. And this is what we're going to be doing each week in January. We're going to be thinking together about ways we can enjoy Jesus. Because church, this is what we do. This is what we are. Uh, we enjoy Jesus and we make disciples. We are a people who enjoy Jesus. We are Jesus enjoyers. Uh, the Westminster Catechism starts like this. It's just a simple question and answer that, that teaches good theology. It starts like this. Here's question number one. What is the chief end of man? That's a way of saying, what is the primary purpose of man? What have you been made for and I've been made for? What is the purpose of man? What's the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, I think that answer gets even better if you change the and to abide. To glorify God by enjoying him forever. You exist to glorify God. This is why you have been made, to make much of God, to say true things about God, to be image bearers, good reflectors of God. And we do that, we glorify God by enjoying God, by delighting in God, by our hearts finding their deepest satisfaction in God. You were made for the enjoyment of Jesus. Your heart has been designed to be dazzled by God. That's how God has made you as a human being. I love how J.R. Packer says it. He says, knowing God is a relationship calculated to thrill a person's heart. That that is what our knowing of God is supposed to produce in us. That relationship, who God is, he has made and made us for our hearts being thrilled in the knowing of him. Uh, This is how we're to relate to God. Uh, The heart of God is like this vast universe. And that heart of God, that vast universe, has these endless discoveries in it. Like for the rest of eternity, if you're in Christ, you're going to be making these discoveries in the heart of God that's going to bring this deep, durable delight to your heart. Jesus lived, he died, and he walked out of the grave, not just to save us from God's wrath, but to open up God's heart to us to explore forever. This is what the good news of Jesus is doing for you. It's bringing you to God, opening God's heart for you to know and enjoy. And prayer is one way we enjoy God. It's one way that we enjoy Jesus. It's one way that we delight in the person of Jesus. Prayer is not primarily us getting something from God, although petitioning and interceding and asking is a huge part of prayer. It's not the primary thing of prayer. Prayer is primarily for us getting God, knowing God, enjoying God, communing with God, exploring God's vast heart. That's what prayer is primarily for. Prayer is one way we enjoy the person of Jesus. And that takes us to our text. Mark chapter 9 and 10 Uh, Those two chapters, uh, you know, if you want kind of thematically what's happening, uh, Jesus is discipling his disciples, right? This is what he's doing. He is teaching them. It's an intense time of of teaching. And Jesus in our text is about to teach them a massive lesson for life and ministry. Uh, This is a lesson they've got to learn. This is a lesson they have to get kind of down deep into their bones. And the lesson in our text comes in the last two verses. So let's just work through the story together. Okay, the first 13 verses in Matthew 9, uh, it is Jesus, uh, James, Peter, and John, they are up on a mountain. 
and, uh, and it's amazing. It's a mind-blowing experience they have up on the mountain. You can read about it in the first 11 verses. And then after that amazing experience on the mountain, in verse 13, uh, they finish that. They come down. Now they're walking down the mountain. They leave the mountain and they walk back into the valley of brokenness, just where all the rest of us live, right? Now they're coming back down uh, from the mountain and you pick it up in verse 14. And when they, so that's Jesus, uh, James, Peter, and John, when they came to the disciples, that's the other nine disciples, they saw a great crowd around the other nine disciples. And they saw the scribes arguing with them. So there's now an argument going on. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to Jesus and greeted him. So again, you see the picture. They've come down from the mountain. They're joining the other nine disciples who are doing the thing here. And these nine disciples are in an argument with the scribes. That's what Jesus walks into. Verse 16. And Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Now from Luke's version of this same story, we know that this man, uh, that this child is his only child. So this father talking here has one son, and this is the one son. So don't pass over that. We, we need to feel what's going on in this text. Imagine if that is your one and only son, what you would be feeling. And that's when this dad, this parent of this one and only son says to Jesus, so I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able they were not able. Now, in chapter 6, uh, the disciples were given power to do these things, authority to do these things, and in chapter 6, they were doing them. They, they were casting out demons. They, they were doing all of these types of things. But now, in chapter 9, they are powerless to help this man and his one and only son. Now, Jesus responds in verse 19. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. There is no pain like parent pain. If you're a parent, you put yourself in this situation, you feel that. There's no pain like parent pain. And you can just imagine the desperation this father feels in this moment. And the father looks at Jesus and says this, but if you can do anything, but if you can, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, did you really just say to me, if you can? I mean, did you really just look at me, Jesus, and say, hey, Jesus, if you can do this, if you can help, did you really just say that? Did you really just say, if you can? All things are possible for one who believes. All things. All things are possible. Verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
I believe, but help my unbelief. Welcome to the war inside of every follower of Jesus. There it is, right? I believe, but I know that belief in me is shaky. It's small. It's weak. It's wavering. I believe, but, but Jesus, I want to believe more. Help me believe more. If you've been following Jesus for more than about 13 seconds, you know what that feels like. Right? God, I believe, but, but help me believe. This is why John Calvin, when he's paraphrasing and commenting on this verse, he, he says it this way. We're partly all unbelievers until we die. All of us, any follower of Jesus, you're still partly an unbeliever until you die, right? You still got that in you. We, we all know what this feels like to look at God and say, God, I believe, but I know it's shaky. I know it's wobbly. So God, help my unbelief. Help me believe more. And look how Jesus responds in verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. Jesus in this moment does what the disciples could not do. And that inserts the tension into the text. That is the thing the text then becomes about. Why is that? So when they get Jesus alone, they ask him the question, verse 28. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, God, we are Jesus, we've got a question that we want to kind of get you off by yourself and ask you. And here's the question. Why could we not cast it out? What is the problem here? Right? You gave us authority over demons. We were casting out demons in chapter 6. We were healing the sick. Things were happening. Right, All of this was happening. And now this. Now we run into this demon. And we don't have any authority and power over it. We're not able to do anything about this. What is going on? Why is this happening? Now imagine you don't know verse 29. What would you say to the disciples? What would be your answer to what's the problem in this moment? Uh, maybe your answer would be, it's a theological problem. Maybe what the disciples need is another year of seminary. Maybe that's it. Uh, maybe your answer would be a method or a technique problem. Well, here's what you've got to do. You, you've got to talk to demons like this and not like that. When you're doing an exorcism, it needs to look like this and not like, I mean, maybe that would be your thing, a method or a technique issue. Maybe it would be a moral issue. Have you repented of a sin in your life? Maybe that would be it. But none of those issues are what's going on here. Verse 29. And Jesus said to them, here's your problem. Here's the issue. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And some manuscripts say fasting because prayer and fasting are so often connected. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, verse 29 is meant to shock us. You're supposed to think, are you serious? You mean the disciples aren't praying in this moment? I mean, they've got the dirt of ministry under their fingernails. In this particular moment, they are attempting to set a person free from deep, dark oppression. They're attempting to cast out a demon. Let me say that again. To cast out a demon. That's no small thing, amen? That's a big thing, right? And they're doing all of that, Jesus says. Here's their problem. They're doing all of that. You're attempting all of that without prayer. You're trying to do all of these things without prayer. The problem wasn't the length of their prayers. The problem wasn't the wisdom in their prayer. The problem was a complete lack of prayer. That's the issue. They lacked prayer. I wonder if that is true of you. 
This passage really is an opportunity for us to look at our prayer life. Do we lack prayer? Do we lack prayer? I want to show you and just point out just briefly three things from this text uh, that it shows us about prayer. Here's the first. This text shows us that the power of Jesus is connected to praying, to prayer. The power of Jesus is connected to prayer. Verse 29, this kind, this kind can only be driven out by prayer. Nothing but prayer is going to work here. It's, it's going to only happen by prayer. Now, that begs the question, this kind of what? What, what, what kind of thing can only happen by prayer? Now, in the context of this passage, the, the, this kind is talking about exorcisms, right? It's talking about casting out of, of demons. And Jesus is saying here, if you're going to do this work, you need power. And that power that you need will only come through prayer. That is the only way you'll get it. It only comes through prayer. And we know, though, from the rest of the Bible that this kind has a much broader application. We know from the rest of the Bible that this kind of thing that can only happen by prayer, that this kind of thing, it is everything in our life that is eternally significant. Everything in your life that is eternally significant, hear me, can only happen by prayer. Only happened by prayer. Jesus is teaching the disciples, and by extension us, the lesson of John 15, 5. Here's John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. So that's who I am, that's who you are. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Now listen to this last phrase. For apart from me, you can do a few things. Doesn't say that though, does it? But apart from me, you can do some things. Doesn't say that. No, it says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. No thing. There's nothing you can do in your life if you're trying to do it apart from me. There's nothing you're going to accomplish that has any eternal significance apart from me. You, you need me that much. You, you need power that comes from me that much. Now the question is, do you believe that about your life? Do you believe that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing of eternal significance? Do you believe that you're that weak? That you're that needy? That you're that helpless? That apart from Jesus, you can do nothing? Or maybe we could say it positive. If we're going to do anything significant, eternally significant, we need the power of Jesus. And that power only comes through prayer. H.B. Uh, Charles, he's answering the question, why should I pray? Listen to his answer. Why should I pray? Here's why. Because prayer works. More, more accurately, God works when we pray. And then I love this last little phrase. Listen to what he says. When we work, here's what happens. We work. But when we pray, here's what happens. This is amazing. God works. D don't we all want our life to have more of God working in it, not just us working in it? We all want that, right? When we pray, God works. James 5, 17 and 18 is in the Bible to help convince you of that. Here's James 7, 5, 17 through 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So that's just James saying, hey, it's not because Elijah was some sort of superhero. 
He's just a guy just like you. you. He's just a normal person. Just nothing extraordinary. He's a person just like you. So Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And you wouldn't believe this. For the next three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Verse 18. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. So why do we pray? Because prayer connects us to the power of Jesus. Do you believe that about prayer? That it connects you to the power of Jesus? That that it's doing that in in your life? Okay, so let's just take Elijah for a moment. Is God sovereign over the rain? Answer is yes. Yes. God is sovereign over everything, over every drop of rain that's ever fallen from the sky or not. God is sovereign over those things. God is sovereign over the rain. Did God determine when the rain would stop and start? Yes. God is determining all of those things. And God sovereignly ordained that when Elijah prayed, when he prayed, not before it, not after it, but when Elijah prayed, the rain would stop. And then when he prayed again, it would start. That is how God works through prayer. I love how John Piper says it. He says, prayer is the splicing of our limp wire to the lightning bolt of heaven. Like in other words, if you want the lightning bolt of heaven, if you want the power of God in your life, that comes through a heart that is engaged in prayer. It only comes through prayer. Prayer connects us to the power of God. If you do a word study on prayer, it's so interesting what you'll find. If you just do that through the New Testament, in particular the book of Acts, here's what you're going to find all the time. It's when people were praying, as people were praying, that God starts acting. That those two things are connected. When, as people are praying, God acts. When we pray, God works. That's what you're finding in the Bible. Years ago, I read Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life. Now, I remember highlighting this sentence out of it. He said, I cannot stress enough that God is actually answering my prayers. Prayer connects us to the power of God. So when we pray, we can do so with expectancy, with hopefulness, with joyfulness, knowing that we are praying to the God who holds the whole world in his hands. And we're praying to a God who loves to respond to the prayers of his people. Prayer connects us to the power of God. Second thing we learn is prayerlessness is never the real problem. Prayerlessness is never the main problem, the real problem. Behind their prayerlessness was their real problem. And here's what was behind their prayerlessness. Here's the word, self-reliance, self-dependence. That's the real problem that the disciples have. This was the problem behind their prayerlessness. Uh, Again, listen to H.B. Charles talk about this. He says, prayer is arguably the most objective measurement of our dependence upon God. Okay, so think about your dependence upon God. If you want to know how dependent upon God you are, just look at your prayer life, he's saying. Think of it this way. The things you pray about are the things you trust God to handle. The things you neglect to pray about are the things you trust you can handle. You can do all of that on your own, he's saying. So think about it this way. Prayerfulness on one side, self-sufficiency on the other side. These two have an inverse relationship. When this one goes up, that one goes down. When that one goes up, this one goes down. Prayerfulness, self-sufficiency, inverse relationship. So think about what prayer is. Prayer is an expression of dependence upon God. It is coming to God with our arms up in the air and saying, God, we know that we can't, but you can't. So God, we're asking you to do what only you can. 
That, that is prayer. It's, a, it's an expression of our dependence, knowing that we are weak and needy and need help. And only God can give it to us. That's what prayer is. Prayerlessness is an expression of self-dependence. Prayerlessness comes from a heart who looks at life and sees life like this and says about life, um, you know, I think I've got the resources I need today. I think I've got the wisdom I need today. I think I've got the wherewithal I need today. I think I've got what I need today to do what today needs. I think I can handle today. God, I'll let you know if I get in a pinch, but I think I've got today. That is the heart of prayerlessness. And here's what I love about looking at our prayer life. Our prayer life will not let us lie about our either self-dependence or God-dependence. It will not let us lie. It shows you what you really think about you and what you really think about God. That, your prayer life it is, to say what H.B. Charles says again, it is arguably the most objective measurement of our dependence upon God. It will tell you the truth about your dependence upon God or lack of. Paul Miller is right when he says, okay, if you want to pray more, okay, if you want to pray more, you do not need more self-discipline if you want to pray more. Here is all that you need to pray more. You just need to be poor in spirit. That's all you need. You just need to know that you're actually dependent upon God. You just need to know that you are that weak, that needy, that helpless. That is what makes us pray more. So this story is supposed to stun us in two ways. It's supposed to stun us as we look at the disciples and we're like, what are they doing? They're trying to cast out a demon, do all these things, and they're not praying. Right? They're that self-reliant. So it's supposed to stun us as we look at them, and it's supposed to stun us as we look at ourselves, as we see us in them. Right, these words weren't written just for the 12 disciples, spoken just to the 12. They, they were spoken for all of Jesus' disciples. So that you, a couple of thousand years later, could read this story and see yourself in it. So yes, this passage is a window through which we get to look into the life of the disciples. But it's also a mirror so that we can hold this passage up in front of us and not just see their problem with prayerlessness, but see our problem with it. Not just to see their self-reliance, but to see our own self-reliance. It's meant to help us see those things. So, do you pray? How is your prayer life? What's it saying about your self-reliance versus your reliance upon God? A few months ago, there was a day when I was in the middle of trying to make a hard decision and, you know, I'm fretting over it. I'm trying to figure out what to do. I'm, you know, doing all the stuff. And I'm talking to a friend about it. And that's when he asked me that question. You know what that question is? It's that moment when your friend looks at you and says, hey, have you prayed about it? You're like, oh, you're going to ask me that. All right, fine then. I'm like, no, I haven't prayed about it, but I should right now. Let's do that, right? And I think that's a great picture for how so many of us live. D doing our life out of self-reliance. Self-dependence. No matter how dependent on Jesus we think we are, prayer, like nothing else, shows us the truth. Do you pray? I mean, just think about your prayer life for a moment. Are you a person who periodically prays or are you a man or, or woman of prayer? A, a person of prayer, just defined by prayer. Prayerlessness is never the real problem. Self-reliance is. Here's the third thing we learn in this text. We learn that prayer is the posture of a Christian. That every moment of a Christian's life, a follower of Jesus' life, is meant to be preceded by and punctuated by prayer. It's just meant to be permeated by prayer. 
And we know that because we really do believe the gospel. We really do believe that we are that dependent upon God, that helpless, that needy, that, that we have to pray. We, we need Jesus so much that we have to pray. This is why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Prayer is meant to be the posture of a Christian. Since we're always dependent upon God, we are always praying to God. That, that's the, the dynamic of the Christian life. We're always dependent, therefore we're always praying. And just think about your life for a moment. Every day you face evil. You face all sorts of sin in your life. You face all sorts of temptations in your life. Just Satan ready to wreck and ruin everything in your life. You face all sorts of cravings in you. Just your heart leaping after things that aren't Jesus, that, that will kill you in the end. That, that's all of our lives. Our heart's doing that every single day. And we do not have the power to resist these things, to overcome these things, to, to walk through these things apart from God. We, we do not have the power to do it. But, but every time we pray, we are abandoning hope in ourselves and we are throwing ourselves onto the power and the goodness and the grace of our God. This is meant to be the totality of our life. It's just the way that we live is in prayer. It's the posture that we, of which we live with. So here is what we're going to do over the next 21 days as a church family. We are today entering into 21 days of prayer. And just as a little thing at the end of that, and fasting. We're entering into that sort of a season. 21 days of prayer. For the next 21 days. So that's today through January 28th. It is a chance for us to cultivate a better habit around prayer. Just habitually in prayer with Jesus, communing with Jesus, both in concentrated conversation, setting aside extended time to talk to the Lord and listen to the Lord, and a casual conversation, just developing that ongoing conversation with the Lord throughout the day. It's 21 days of developing the habit of prayer. So there's four things I'm going to ask you to do to make this a priority over the next 21 days. Okay, so here are the four things. Four things I'm asking you to do with us to make this a priority. Number one is that you would ask Jesus, what is one way I can grow in prayer? And then whatever he says, you do it. So maybe that's, uh, I'm going to meet with a friend once a week for the next three weeks and pray with them together. We'll just open up the Bible and just pray through a chapter of the Bible together. Uh, maybe that is for you, uh, praying a psalm every morning and every evening. Maybe that is for you praying with your spouse every night before you go to bed. Maybe that is for you taking a 10-minute walk every day to practice silence and solitude, just listening and communing and talking with the Lord. But just asking the Lord, what's one way I can grow in prayer and then do that? We've developed a prayer guide that we're going to give you. It's going to come out to you today. We're going to send that to you. It's going to be uh, on our social media stuff. Uh, all of those things will be there for you on our website. It's a prayer guide with various practices meant to just give you some structure as you set aside time to spend it with the Lord. So it's got a lot of resources in there for you. And it's also going to have prayer topics. For each of the next 21 days, we're going to give our entire church family one thing in particular to pray for our church. We are entering into a massively important year for us as a church family. Come back next Sunday night. Uh, we'll tell you all about what's kind of in front of us. It is a massively important year that we need to be just interceding for our church, asking the Lord to show up in some extraordinary ways. So we're going to give you a, a topic a day to pray for for our church family. So that's the first thing. Ask the Lord for one way you can grow in prayer and then do it. Here's the second thing. To pray with us at least once a week. 
to pray with us at least once a week. So we're going to have prayer hours up here at the church. Uh, for the next three weeks. And the goal is just to create some undistracted space for you to commune and enjoy the Lord. That's what we're going for. So uh, the church is going to be open Monday through Thursday for the next three weeks from 6 a.m. to noon. So Monday through Thursday, next three weeks, 6 a.m. to noon. From 6 to 7, we're just going to have a silent hour. There's going to be no music, no anything going on. It's just going to be a silent hour in here for, for people to practice silence and solitude. So we're going to get an hour of that for people to do that, just enjoying communion with Jesus. From 7 to 7.15, we're going to have a little bit of worship and just a quick encouragement around prayer uh, from one of our staff and uh, elders, uh, uh, pastors on our team. So that'll be from 7 to 7.15. And then from 7.15 to noon, there'll just be light background music going on. Just a, a great space, undistracted for you to enjoy the Lord in prayer. So take advantage of that. You can do that with your community group. That would be a great thing to do. Uh, you can do that with a group of friends. You could do that with your family. You could do that with some of your kids. But this is for you, us together, to communally engage the Lord, enjoy the Lord together. Now, if you uh, are parents and you have young kids, uh, you're probably going to have to work together on that. Uh, you may have to create a morning where you take the kids so your spouse can jump up here and then vice versa on a different morning of the week. But one day a week, make a plan to come up uh, and spend some time up here with us in prayer. So pray with us at least once a week. Number three is to fill out a prayer request card weekly. That should be on your seat, a prayer request card weekly. One way we can deepen our dependence on the Lord is by allowing other people to pray for us. That's one way you can do that. So take advantage of post-service prayer. That's just an easy way to do that. Every uh, service, at the end of it, some of our prayer team, staff, elders, pastors will be up here ready to pray for you. You should take advantage of letting people pray for you. This is one way to show you are weak, you're needy, you, you need Jesus. It's one way for you to do that. Uh, but each week, here's another way we're going to encourage you to do that. Every Sunday to fill out that prayer request card with one meaningful way we can pray for you. This is not praying for world peace, right? This is praying for you. What's one way you can show your dependence on the Lord by allowing people to pray for you and need in your life, a particular struggle, whatever that is, we can pray for you. And those are going to show up during our prayer hours in the morning. So people will be able to pray for those throughout the week. They're going to show up next Sunday in our handout. So the next week, someone can pray individually for you by name uh, for, for that next week. So every week, fill out that prayer card. So don't leave today without filling out that card, dropping it in the giving boxes on the way out. Number four is to fast one day. 24 hours, one day each week. For you to fast one day each week. Now, what is fasting? Fasting is saying no to food. And at other moments, it could be other gifts that the Lord gives us to enjoy. So it could be TV, it could be social media, it could be a variety of other things. But fasting is saying primarily no to food for the sake of some spiritual purpose. Saying no to food, and it's for a purpose though. It's not a diet. It is saying no to food for the sake of a spiritual purpose. So throughout the scriptures, fasting almost, is, almost always is linked to food. It normally means abstaining from everything but water for a day. Uh, maybe it's three days. Maybe it's seven days in the scriptures, 14 days, 21 days, 40 days in the Bible. That's fasting in the scriptures. And fasting and prayer so often are connected together. So it's no, um, you know... It's no wonder that we find in our text this morning, some of those manuscripts say this kind can only be driven out by prayer and fasting because these two are so often connected. And when Jesus teaches on fasting, two things stick out. One, he assumes it, right? In Matthew 6, he does not command us to fast. He just assumes that we will. Secondly, uh, Jesus connects fasting to a longing for his return. 
for longing to him to come back. So if you ask Jesus, why did you not command us to fast? I think he would say something uh, like this in response. Command it? Why, why would I need to command it? Because fasting flows from every heart that has a longing for me in it. Every heart that has a longing for my return in it will fast as an expression of that longing. That's Christian fasting. It's an expression of a longing heart, a heart longing for Jesus and his return. But here's what I love about fasting. Fasting not only expresses our longing for Jesus, it also increases our longing for Jesus. Matthew Henry, the commentator, Puritan pastor, he said it this way. Fasting serves to put an edge on our devout affections. I love that. Sometimes our affections for Jesus grow cold. That they get blunted. And what fasting does is it's a way to take the grinder out and to sharpen the edge of our affections for Jesus. Our enjoyment of Jesus. So each week, we're just encouraging everyone in our church to give a 24-hour period. You could think of it as maybe a dinner to a dinner. To say to God, I love you more than food. To give a 24-hour period each week to turn every craving for food into more cravings for God. So I'll close here. Charles Spurgeon, he was the pastor of a church in London about a century and a half ago. And he, he said this. He said, our seasons of fasting and prayer, this is what we're entering into, a 21-day season of that. Our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle, which is the name of their church. He said, those seasons have been high days indeed. Never has heaven's gates stood wider. Never have our hearts been nearer the central glory. Is there anything our hearts need more than to be near the central glory, the glory of God himself? So church, let's enjoy Jesus in prayer. In fasting, let's sharpen our affections. And let's just tell Jesus with some simple fast over the next three weeks that, Jesus, I, I love you this much. I, I love you more than these things that I'm going without. Amen? Let's pray together. Give you just a moment to interact with the Lord and talk to the Lord. How's your prayer life? What's it showing you about your dependence upon God, your dependence upon you? And one way we can deepen our dependence is by allowing others to pray for us. So if you came in today, I'm not going to embarrass you in any way, shape, or form today. But if you came in today and you came in with a limp in need, just like that father in our text, there's just desperation in you of, I need Jesus to show up and I need him to do it like not tomorrow, but today, oh God. If that's you, would you, would you mind just raising your hand there where you are? If that's you? Yeah. Just raise your hand really high. And if, if, yeah, everybody can look up right now and I want you to see the hands that are in there. Just raise your hand really high. If that's you, if you came in just with a limp today. Yeah, I see you all around the room. Any others? Just keep your hand up high for a minute. 
You came in just needing the Lord to show up in your life right now. Yeah, any others? Again, I'm not going to embarrass you. We're just going to pray for you. Any others? Okay. You see the people around you. Why don't you just put your hands on them really quickly? And let's just pray and ask the Lord for help. Father, you know the particular situation that every one of these brothers and sisters in the room came in with today. Lord, would you help them? God, would you meet them with grace today and the the help they need? Just like you met this father and this son in this text, God, would you meet them today? God, would you bring healing? Would you bring the help they need today? Oh, God. God, would you give them hope today, a joyful expectancy that you, their God, have their lives in your hands and that you, their God, love to respond to the prayers of your people. And God, we're praying for just a supernatural response for you to do what only you could do in their life. Oh God, would you do it? It's in the good name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. So friends, you know, when you think about the Christian life, it starts in prayer. So if you have never prayed that first prayer of turning from your sin and throwing your life upon Jesus, saying to God, God, here I am, save me, uh, then this is your chance to do that. And here's really the image I want to leave you with today. Can you just picture in your mind's eye Jesus standing with his arms wide open to you? In this 21-day season of prayer, here's what I'm praying for you that you would see the Lord just like this in your life, inviting you to come in. To come and enjoy Him. To come and have Him. To come and commune with Him. He stands with His arms wide open, ready to receive you this morning. So God, would you help us? And it's in the good name of Jesus we ask it. Amen.